This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part one of four of Professor Hanko's series, Our Creedal Heritage. In this podcast, we are given a definition of what a creed is and the place creeds have in the life of the church. Before I begin our subject for this evening, I want to express a word of appreciation to the Reformed Witness Committee for choosing this subject of, the, uh, of our creedal heritage for this year's classes. I consider this to be a, a particularly worthwhile choice of a topic. And I consider it to be a worthwhile choice of a topic in the first place because I think that the place of creeds in the life of the church is frequently misunderstood, even in our own circles. Not only the place of creeds, but the important place which creeds occupy in the life of the Church of Jesus Christ is frequently not understood or appreciated. I refer, for example, to a rather common criticism of this statement, and maybe you yourself would want to take issue with it. The genuinely reformed way to come to the scriptures, to ascertain what the scriptures teach, is by way of the creeds. I have made that expression from time to time, from the pulpit and in the classroom, and almost always there are those who take issue with it and say a statement of that sort sets the creeds above the scriptures and gives them an authority greater than the word of God. That's not so, of course. No one would ever want to do that. But it does indicate that the place of creeds in the life of the church is misunderstood and the importance of that place is not fully appreciated. I would go so far as to say that a church which is not a creedal church is in fact no church at all. I'm fully aware of the fact that it is common among Baptists to rail against confessions and to say concerning confessions, let all you churches have your creeds, we have no creed but Christ. They boast of that. They are of the opinion that that kind of a position sets them a notch above other churches and makes them more faithful to the Word of God. I am saying tonight, and I hope to say that in different ways in these classes, a church which is not a creedal church is in fact not the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. One cannot have a church, a true church, a church with the marks of the true church, unless it has confessions. 
When I say a true church is a confessional church, I do not mean to say that it merely has its confessions in the back of its songbook, or perhaps hidden somewhere in the archives of the consistory, gathering dust in some obscure corner. I mean to say that a church which is the true church of Jesus Christ is a creedal church in this sense, that the creeds on the basis of which the church stands are the pulsing life of the entire church. The, the creeds live in the church. They live in the consciousness of the church. They live so completely and effectively in the church that they control the church's confession, the church's preaching, the church's catechetical instruction, the church's witness in the midst of the world. That's what a confessional church is. I think it a shame that there are members of Protestant Reformed churches who have never made it their business to read through from beginning to end the creeds on the basis of which our churches are founded. I think it a shame when young people are permitted to make confession of faith in the consistory without knowing what the creeds teach. In fact, it seems to me that confession of faith means exactly that. They know what the confessions teach. They confess that they are in agreement with those creeds. It's for these reasons that I consider this subject which we discuss together tonight and in the following weeks to be such an important one. I want to talk about the place of creeds in the life of the church in general before we look at creeds specifically. And I want to spend some time on that tonight defining what that place is. Let me give you a definition of creeds first of all, and I'm not claiming originality in this definition. This definition is for the most part taken from uh, Reverend Hooksma's book on confessions, which for many years was used in the seminary. Reverend Hooksma defines a confession somewhat along these lines. I may alter it here and there just a bit and may make an addition or two, but this is basically his definition of creeds. A creed or a confession is a statement officially adopted and approved by the Church of Christ in which the doctrines of Scripture are set forth in a systematic fashion. I think every part of that definition is important and various parts of that definition I'm going to be commenting on in the course of this speech. That means in the first place that the creeds are official. They are officially adopted by the church. 
There are many ideas that are taught in various churches, and there have been many ideas of one sort or another that have appeared in the pulpits and in the seminaries of the church over the centuries. Some of them true, some of them not true, but none of them constitutes an official declaration on the part of the church because such statements, no matter by whom made, are not officially adopted by the church. The second point that needs emphasis in this definition, it seems to me, is that because these creeds are officially adopted by the church, they are authoritative in the life of the church. They function authoritatively. They come to each member of the church and say, this you must believe. When confession of faith is uh, carried on in a congregation and the question is put to confessing young people, do you believe in the doctrines which are taught here in this Christian church? The specific reference is to the confessions. When office bearers sign the formula of subscription and promise to be faithful to the creeds and combat all heresies which militate against the creeds, they are saying these creeds officially govern and regulate my life as an office bearer in the church of Jesus Christ. When an individual joins the Protestant Reformed churches or is taught in the catechism classes, he must come to the point where he fully understands what the creeds teach and believes with all his heart that these creeds are the doctrines of the scriptures and hence have authority over him in his life to the point that if he should violate the creeds, teach something contrary to them, or make public, publicly known his disagreement with them, he breaks a solemn vow which he made before God and brings down on him God's judgment. I cannot emphasize enough how crucial that is third point in that definition that we're going to be talking about a bit is that they are systematic formulations of the truth of the scriptures. And that too needs a great deal of emphasis in our day. I'm going to be talking about this a bit more in just a few moments, but that word systematic that I used in that definition is, in my judgment, a tremendously important word. Now, the question is, of course, what is the relationship between the scriptures and creeds? The answer to that question is this, that the scriptures in relationship to creeds can be compared and are analogous to an acorn in relationship to an oak tree. The confessions are an outgrowth 
of the Scriptures. The confessions contain nothing in them which is not in the Scriptures themselves. The confessions are an explication and definition of what is found in the Word of God. The Word of God, however, is not in, a, in the form of a confession. And that is because of the fact that the Word of God, in its very nature, is the infallibly inspired, written record of the revelation of God in history. That's not a systematic revelation of God. That is God speaking in the history of this present world. God speaking sometimes through angels, sometimes through prophets, sometimes through miracles, sometimes through types and shadows in the law. But centrally in Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh. Christ was born at a given time, on a given day, which can be marked on the calendar, in a given location, in Bethlehem of Judea, as a part of history. Mary was pregnant for nine months before she brought forth the Christ. He lived and taught and performed miracles in Palestine, an earthly country. He died on a cross which was planted by Roman soldiers on Golgotha at a given time in the morning, nine o'clock to be specific. He died as a part of history. And, mind you, he rose from Joseph's grave as a part of history. The whole of the revelation of God is a revelation in which God speaks in and through history itself and the course and movement of history as it flows from paradise the first to the end of time. Because God's speech is the speech that is in history, there is no, what I would call, systematic setting forth of the truth in Scripture with all the emphasis on the word systematic. There is, however, in the Scriptures and in Revelation, one principle that governs the whole of Revelation and the whole of Scripture so that it constitutes a unity of many diverse parts. The principle of the unity of Scripture is the Word of God become flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ. As I have done so frequently in hermeneutics class in years gone by, I have compared the scriptures with a portrait, a portrait of Jesus Christ. It's a rich portrait. It's a beautiful portrait. It has a diversity of parts. 
but it is one portrait for all that. It is the portrait of Christ from Genesis 1 verse 1 to the last verse of Revelation 22. Every part of the scriptures belongs to that portrait. Take one part away and you mar the portrait and detract from the portrait some of its beauty and its completeness. But when the scriptures were first given to the church, and I know this analogy is inadequate and suffers from severe limitations, but I'm going to use it anyway. When the scriptures are first given to the church, although they, the church realized from the very outset that not only did the scriptures constitute an organic unity, but that it had the principle of its unity in this one portrait of Jesus Christ, it was faced, so to speak, with 3,000 pieces, much as you are faced with 3,000 pieces when you buy a 3,000-piece puzzle in the hobby store. It had to be put together. I don't want to press that analogy too far, but this is what happens when the church makes creeds. It puts the puzzle together. Let me be a bit more specific and concrete about that. Take, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity, one of the fundamental truths of the scriptures. You don't find that doctrine in Locus 1, chapter 1 of a dogmatics book. You find a hint of that doctrine already in Genesis 1, where God, communing with himself and taking counsel with himself, says to himself, let us make man in our image. As you proceed through the scriptures, there is no clear statement in any given verse of the doctrine of Scripture which sums it all up, but there are bits and pieces which have to be put together as these pieces are mined from every part of the Word of God until finally you get all the way to the book of Revelation after having gone carefully through 1 John 5 and its explicit statements concerning the Trinity. It's the work of creeds to put it together. Something that has to be done if the church is to hold to the truth of the scriptures. There's a compelling necessity there is an obligation which is laid upon the church which for the church to dodge that responsibility would simply spell its ecclesiastical suicide. The truth of the scriptures set forth as the record of the revelation of God must be systematized. What do I mean by that? Systematized. I mean two things. I mean in the first place that that truth of the scriptures has to be systematized by the church 
carefully going through the scriptures from beginning to end and gleaning from the scriptures every single point concerning a given doctrine and bringing it all together, understanding what each part where this doctrine is referred to teaches and constituting out of that one harmonious whole. This, we believe, is what the scriptures teach from beginning to end concerning this given doctrine. That's a confession. That's exactly the opposite, and I hope to say a little bit more about that sometime later, but that's the exactly the opposite of what Baptists do. Baptists are strange people. No wonder they're Baptists. They don't, they don't do this. If you talk to a Baptist or debate with a Baptist, a Baptist is always jumping around from one text to another, hopping from here to there. You never can pin him down. And if you say, yes, but this text teaches this, he's often running in search of another text without paying any attention to what you have to say so that you can never confront him with this crucially important question. What does the Word of God in its entirety teach about this given doctrine? And when the church, for example, at Nicaea formulated the doctrine of the Trinity and the divinity of Christ, the church was like one who works with a jigsaw puzzle and notices that it will be quite easy to find in all of this welter of pieces all the individual pieces that have this color because there seems to be a large house in this puzzle and maybe by matching the colors and following the lines of the architecture of the house I can put this these pieces together to make this house. Where it goes in the whole puzzle, I don't know yet, but that'll become clearer as I go along. But I'm going to work over here and make this house. And pretty soon when I can lift it, the whole piece up and put it in the puzzle, then I'll see it in relationship to the other parts. That's sort of what Nicaea did in its definition of the doctrine of the divinity of Christ. That's an essentially important thing because the only way to understand the truth, any given truth of the Word of God, justification by faith, creation, is not just simply to find one text, but to comb the Scriptures from beginning to end and find what the Word of God says in all parts of it about any given doctrine. Now, Second reason why that's important to do is simply because of the fact that every single doctrine of the Scriptures, no matter what it is, can really be understood and appreciated for what it's worth and what it means when it stands in relationship to all the other doctrines of Scripture. Because don't forget, the whole portrait is the portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you may put together that part of the puzzle which is part of the background of the portrait against which the face of Jesus Christ stands. Or you may even put together part of 
his facial features, if I may use that expression. But only when you have the whole puzzle put together, every part in its proper place, and the portrait is complete, and you see every part of it in relationship to every other part, can you come to appreciate the individual truths? You can't appreciate the doctrine of justification by faith alone in isolation from the doctrine of total depravity and the total inability of man. You can't appreciate the doctrine of the atonement, an atonement by God himself, unless you see the futility of all the sacrifices of the old dispensation and man's bringing of sacrifices of oxen and sheep. When all the truth stands together, then you have the portrait of Christ. And when you have the portrait of Christ, you have God in the face of Christ. Because God reveals himself through Jesus Christ. Now a couple of more things about that. And here's where my analogy of a jigsaw puzzle fails totally. This is the work of the church put together that jigsaw puzzle throughout the whole of the new dispensation. But it doesn't really work that way. I'm talking now about the fact that throughout the new dispensation, the church develops in doctrine. We today, in the 21st century, when it comes to an understanding of the truth, are much, much richer than the church in the time of Augustine. And even for that matter, the church at the time of the Reformation. I'm not saying we're spiritually stronger. I'm not saying we're more vibrant in our pursuit of the knowledge of the truth. The Reformation is unique in that respect. But as far as our understanding is concerned, you know more, if you have minded your P's and Q's anyway, you know more about the truth of Scripture than Calvin. The truth develops. How does that truth develop? Well, the Scriptures, because the Scriptures are the inspired and infallible Word of God, are a source of the treasures of the truth which the church until the time of the coming of Christ will not have exhausted. There is a kind of a depth to the scriptures. Even though it is a human book. I mean human in the sense that it, here it is right here was printed by Oxford Press. It is a revelation of God in human language. It is nevertheless so profound that the church throughout the whole of the New Testament will not plumb the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God revealed in Christ on the pages of Scripture. So it's a constant mine, a constant source of growth in the knowledge of the truth.
Second point I want to make is this, and now I'm going to go to John 14, 15, and 16. Always the revelation of the truth of the Word of God is not man's work, not the church's work, but the Spirit's work. Always. We don't know a thing. We don't know a thing. We can't understand a thing of the Scriptures and of the knowledge of God apart from the work of the Spirit of truth. I want just to call your attention briefly to John 14. Let's read that a moment. 17 and 18. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. That word another is interesting. I think the first comforter to which the Lord refers is the Lord himself. But the Lord was going away. This was spoken on the night of, of uh, celebration of the Passover, when the Lord changed the Passover to the Lord's Supper. He was about to be crucified. He was about to go away. And the disciples were very sad about that. And he told them he would give them another comforter. That he may abide with you forever. This comforter will stay with you forever. Who is that comforter? The spirit of truth. And I think that means... The Spirit who makes known the truth. The Spirit who is the source and cause of the knowledge of the truth. I will pray the Father, and the Father will give you another comforter. Not me. I'm going away. But the Spirit of truth. And then notice, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. The Spirit of truth is the unique and exclusive possession of the church. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. And then, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Now, Jesus isn't referring there to the second coming when he shall come again upon the clouds of heaven, as is clear from the other references in verse 26 of this chapter, and chapter 15, verse 26, and chapter 16, and two distinct references. Jesus means to say, this is a wonderful thing. I, I'd like to explore that with you further, but I can't tonight. When the spirit of truth comes to you and stays with you and dwells in you, then I come. I come because that spirit is my spirit that I send. My spirit that I receive. 
Why does Christ receive that spirit? Well, because he made the perfect atonement for sin and because he rose from the dead and by his perfect sacrifice merited all the blessings of salvation so that his church could go with him into glory to be in Father's house of many mansions. But when he sends the Spirit, he says, I come to you. I literally come to you. That's not figurative language. I think our Heidelberg Catechism has it right when in the Lord's Day on the Lord's Supper, what it means to eat the body of Christ and drink his blood. They don't want Rome's position, but they say, among other things, it means this, that by the Holy Spirit who dwells in Christ as the head and in the church as his members, we become more and more united to his blessed body. In a real spiritual, mystical, if you will, way, but nevertheless, very real, by the Spirit. Christ comes to us by the Spirit, and he is the truth of God. He embodies that truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's how the church is able to study the scriptures, glean from the scriptures the doctrines which are taught in the scriptures, and put them all together because the spirit of truth is leading the church into all truth. That's a marvelous work. And while I want to talk about that a little bit more, I want to call your attention to the fact that any church which scorns her confessions slaps the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth in the face. You better be careful. These confessions of which we speak are the fruit of the work of the Spirit of Christ in the church. It's not the work of Nicaea in the final analysis, or Constantinople, or Chalcedon, or Ursinus and Olivianus, or the Synod of Dort, or the Westminster Assembly. None of those. It's the work of the Spirit of Truth, who leads and guides the church into all truth. The next remark I want to make is this. As the Spirit guides the church into the truth, that truth grows organically as it develops in the life of the church. Somewhere along the line in the course of my education, I don't know where anymore, I can't remember it, I was taught, and that idea lingered with me for years and years, that the development of the truth is like the building of the wall of a city. And the analogy struck me as being extraordinarily forceful. The church is like a city, besieged city, Isaiah 1. The church has to have protection from the enemies. How to be protected? Build the walls higher and higher as the enemy invents new weapons of destruction. 
Each doctrine which the church uncovers is another stone in the wall. As the walls get higher and the church is safer behind these walls. Now there's an element of truth to that. And I don't mean to to poo-poo the whole idea, but that isn't the way it works. The development of the truth in the history of the church is like the growth of an oak tree that develops out of an acorn. And you will notice, I'm sure, when you think about the analogy, that even though you may have a sapling that's only about that high, because the acorn has just sprouted and sent forth its new shoots, You have the whole oak tree. And even though the oak tree should be 300 years old and be a massive tree, nevertheless, there isn't anything in that oak tree which was not in that little sapling that was 18 inches high. That's the way the truth develops. When the church at the dawn of the New Testament set forth the doctrine of the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ and said of him in that that memorable statement that he is true God of true God. The church showed that it had the whole of the truth but as a sapling. And so as the truth develops under the guidance of the spirit of truth, that body of truth grows, but it never possesses anything in it which it did not have at the very beginning of the history of the New Testament church. It only makes it bigger. It only makes it clearer. It only makes it more explicit. But it's all there from the very start. You must not conceive of the church in the immediate post-apostolic times. And I hope to notice some of this with you next week, the Lord willing, as being a church which was so poverty-stricken that it only had crumbs of the truth. Not so. Not so. It had the whole body of the truth except in very, very basic form. And the very heart of that truth is, as Jesus himself makes plain, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That was Peter's confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. On this rock I will build my church. But notice what Jesus says. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, Peter, but my Father, which is in heaven. And that holds true for the whole of the new dispensation. Flesh and blood doesn't reveal that to you. As that one fundamental truth grows and develops and expands and is shown for what it means in all of its rich implications, flesh and blood hasn't revealed it unto you, but my Father, which is in heaven. Not only because the scriptures are infallibly inspired, but also because of the fact that as the church brings together all the scriptural data of these doctrines and shows all their relationships to each other, 
It does so because of the work of the spirit of truth. I want to face the question at this point of the relationship between the authority of the creeds and the authority of scripture. It's a very important question. I made the remark that the creeds are authoritative. They have authority in the church. What kind of authority is that and what is the relationship between the authority of the creeds and the authority of scripture? Now, first of all, I'd like to call your attention to the fact that although both the scriptures and the creeds have their origin in the work of the Holy Spirit, the two works of the Holy Spirit are different. The work of the Holy Spirit in the inspiration of scripture is direct and immediate and word for word both in the word which those inspired spoke and in the word which those inspired wrote. Inspiration does not extend simply to the words which Jeremiah prophesied in Jerusalem. Inspiration extends to the setting down of those prophecies on papyrus. The Holy Spirit worked immediately and directly so that those whom God used to write the scriptures were in a certain sense of the word, and we mustn't be afraid of that, a certain sense of the word, secretaries. They were. They weren't dullards, they weren't robots, they weren't computers that the Holy Spirit hit keys, they were men. And the Holy Spirit worked in such a way that the gifts and upbringing of each man were preserved. But it was direct, immediate inspiration so that those whom God used to write the scriptures themselves did not fully understand what they were writing. Didn't even begin to understand what they were writing. You and I know more today of the meaning of Jeremiah than Jeremiah did. You, know, you and I know better what Romans 8 means than Paul. You even read, don't you, in 1 Peter 1, that the prophets searched their own writings in order to come to a clear understanding of Christ's coming and his work and the time of it. That's not a wonder, except in the sense that it's miraculous and a miraculous work of God, but it isn't impossible to understand. The creeds aren't that way. The creeds are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But the creeds are the fruit of the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth in quite a different manner. I think probably the, the way to 
make this as clear as possible is this, that the work of the preparation of the creeds by the spirit of truth as the spirit operated in the church is analogous to and I'm convinced an integral part of the work of sanctification. You know how the Spirit works sanctification. He doesn't work sanctification in you and me infallibly. He doesn't work sanctification in such a way that all of a sudden, by a mighty work of the Spirit, we are transformed to a spotless, sinless saint. He works sanctification in such a way that all our life long, our life of holiness is characterized by fits and starts by a step progress and a step backwards, by innumerable failings and sins, by a struggle, a struggle that goes on all our life long to live a life of obedience to the Lord our God. And we never get there on this side of the grave, never even get close we have, says the Catechism, only a small beginning of the new obedience. That's the way the Spirit works in the formation of creeds, too. His creeds were formulated in fits and starts, through struggle, through answering heretics, through fighting on the battlefield of faith against false doctrine, through struggling to understand the Scriptures and coming to grips with what the scriptures teach concerning a given doctrine. That's how the creeds came into existence. But when the church said, now we are ready to say, this is the truth of the scriptures, and the church said it. The church could confidently say, as the synod in Jerusalem said at the very beginning, of the apostolic age, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And the order is, of course, we are confident it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and therefore it seems good to us. And we are confident that what is good to us is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's a confession. Now, as far as the authority of the confession is concerned, it derives its authority from that fact. You may say, in fact, that the authority of a confession is derivative. It's a derivative authority. It's not an original authority. There is only one book that has original authority, and that's God's holy word. And when the church says this creed is now authoritative in the life of the church, what the church means to say is this. We are convinced by the testimony of the Spirit in our hearts and the consensus of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ that this statement is the teaching of the Scriptures, not in one text, but in the whole of the Word of God. This is what the Word of God says in its entirety. 
about this doctrine, then you have a creed. Because that authority is derivative, the creeds are constantly subject to the scrutiny of the church. Not only the church as a whole, but each individual believer. It is incumbent upon any responsible child of God, especially in the years of his catechetical instruction, when he is instructed in the doctrines of the creeds, to ask himself the question, is this doctrine the truth of the word of God? And only when he reaches such a point that he can say with confidence, yes, I am convinced that it is, can he in good conscience before God become a member of the church which holds to that confession as its creedal basis. I think that's extraordinarily important. There is this nonsensical idea afloat. I don't know if it's made any inroads in our churches. Sometimes I think it has. But that when a young person makes confession of faith before the consistory, all that the consistory has to ascertain is this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your personal savior? That isn't confession of faith. If someone said to me when he was making confession of faith, well, I believe that Jesus Christ is my personal savior, then I would say to him, well, go to the Baptist church around the corner. You can make confession of faith there if that's all your confession of faith means. Why are you making it here? in Hope Protestant Reformed Church or wherever. I want to know that. Why are you making your confession of faith in this church and not over there or up the street or around the corner? Well, you better be able to answer me that question because otherwise your confession of faith doesn't mean anything. Doesn't that involve a personal confession? Oh, it does. Don't forget what I said, that when the spirit of truth leads the church into the truth, it gives to the church Christ himself as the church's possession. But it gives Christ to the church as the church apprehends and appropriates the truth to itself. And so the confessions are of inestimable value inestimable value. You know, one would think that after spending a lifetime teaching and preaching on the confessions, that the confessions would become rather stale. And that it would be only with great effort that one would pursue his studies of them. Anyone who is diligent in his study of the scriptures and of the confessions will say quite the contrary. The older I get, the more those confessions mean to me, the more beautiful they are, the more I marvel at what the spirit of truth revealed to the church in those confessions, the more 
I am addicted to the confessions. That's what the believer says. He never wearies of them. Not even if you have to preach the catechism. Some of our ministers have been through the catechism many, many times. It's always a joy. That was one thing I missed when I went to the seminary. Couldn't preach on the catechism anymore. Now I, I can in Byron Center. And it's a delight, it's a joy. But that won't last, of course. In any case, one thing the confessions do that I want to emphasize, and emphasize that strongly, and that is this. The confessions anchor us to and tie us with ropes that we cannot break to the church of the past. And this is good. That's where we ought to be anchored, and to that church we ought to be tied. It strikes me again and again and again that those churches which will not give to the confessions their proper place in the life of the church have drifted from their moorings and turned their backs on the church of the past and speak disparagingly of old doctrines, time-bound views expressed in strange language that was perhaps relevant way back then, but is of no use to the church in the 20th century. Well, I'll tell you this much, beloved people of God, and I hope the same thing is true to you. I'd rather spend my time in the company of Athanasius and Augustine and Olivianus and Ursinus and Gomarus, even that hothead at Dort, than in the company of the insipid, wishy-washy, nonsensical theologians of our modern day. Those men were giants. And I can be in their company when I sit down with the confessions. We have to live out of the past. That's one big problem in a mission church. A mission church has to be taught, and that's not so easy, has to be taught that it can't start over and begin as if the church, in all the years gone by, have never tackled the problems which they face or have never defined the doctrines which they are obligated to believe and confess. They're the heirs of a heritage, even a new missionary church. And the missionary church that says, we'll find out for ourselves in every regard what we believe is a church which is hopelessly lost from the very beginning. And in our mission work, our foreign mission work especially, we had better be very careful. That we don't leave that impression with any mission churches which the Lord gives to us through our missionary labors.
But the same thing is true of every individual. Just imagine once, just imagine if I as an individual preacher had to go to Scripture and had to, te- had to preach on the passage, the just shall live by faith. And I had to start from scratch, all on my own, and examine every single passage in the whole of the Word of God where the doctrine of justification by faith is, is mentioned. And exegete every passage and put it all together from scratch. You wouldn't get a sermon out of me, but once every three months. It's all I'd have time for, though I'd give day and night to the work of exegesis and homiletics. But I have the confessions, justification by faith. Ah, Heidelberg Catechism. Ah, the Belgic Confession. What did the church in the past say? And as I read and study that and absorb what the church before us said, I, in my mind, am constantly comparing it with the scriptures. Is this biblical? Although by the time I'm 70 years old, if I haven't found that out yet, something's radically wrong. But you know what I mean. This is what the Bible teaches. This is the Word of God, not in an isolated passage here and there. This is what the Word of God teaches from beginning to end. What a help in preaching. I don't have to start from scratch. I have a heritage. I have a truth. And if I'm going to uncover the riches of God's word more fully, I'd better know what the church in the past taught, or I don't have any business even trying to work more deeply and more profoundly with the truth of the word of God. That's the spirit of truth. And the spirit of truth tells me, puny little nincompoop here in the 21st century who's struggling to try to understand the word of God. There were men before you, giants of the faith, who gave their lives for the truth that you confess. See what they had to say. They confessed it at the stake. They confessed it as they were thrown to the lions. They confessed it when they stood alone against the whole world. Isn't it worthwhile to hear what they have to say? We're pygmies in comparison with them. But it's all the spirit of truth. And my own dependence upon the spirit of truth requires of me that I pay close attention to what that spirit has done in ages gone by. Our creeds. And so they are used, of course, in the churches. They have to be the living confession of the church. They are the fruit of the Spirit. They bring us Christ. I will be with you. I will send forth my Spirit of truth. In another place, Jesus puts it this way. I won't leave you orphans. I will come to you that I may abide with you forever. Lo, I am with you always. Christ, Christ in all his riches, by the spirit of truth, through the creeds. That's why 
I say, I said that at the very beginning, we go to Scripture via the creeds. We do. That's reformed. We don't do that on the mission field. We can't do that on the mission field. On the mission field, you start with Scripture. Mission converts know nothing about the creeds. They stand before the authority of the Word of God. But in a creedal church, if there is heresy, the first question is this. What do the creeds say? And we'll go from the creeds to Scripture. That's what we'll do. That, by the way, is what the Declaration of Principles does. I know the liberated charged us with adopting a fourth form, a fourth creed. Uh, they don't know what they're talking about. All that the Declaration of Principles does is this. Take the Reformed Church that confesses the truth of God's covenant and leads that Reformed Church by way of the creeds back to the Scriptures to show that the Scriptures in its discussion of the covenant emphasize throughout that the covenant is particular for the elect and sovereignly established and maintained and totally unconditional in its execution. The creeds teach that. And so we go not to Scripture to dig out one text here and another text there. Luther already recognized that. Luther said, you do that, you can prove any heresy under the face of the heavens. We don't do that. Reformed man doesn't do that. He wants to know what the whole of the scriptures teach. And that's our creeds. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.